Welcome to Everything Life Coaching. I'm John Kim. And I'm Noelle Cordeaux. We are the founders of Lumia. And we're super passionate about all things coaching, and we want to share what we've learned from over a decade of coaching and training thousands of life coaches. Let's dive into the science and magic of coaching. Hello, welcome to Everything Life Coaching. This is Noelle today, and with me is one of our instructors, Sharice Williams. One of the most important elements of our training program is our instructors. And today, Sharice and I are going to take a deep dive into childhood, our childhoods, and how that brought us to different places within the world of coaching at large, and maybe get into a little bit of what the world needs today. Sharice, how are you? I'm doing great, Noelle. It's so nice to be with you. Always, always is. So before we get started, can you loop our audience in for those who don't know you? Where are you from? What do you do? What do you teach for us? Give us the the bio. Yeah. So I um, live in Atlanta now, <laughs> and um, I spent the first 25 years of my career working in the nonprofit sector on various social justice issues from criminal and juvenile justice reform, to human rights, to education equity. Along the way, as I rose in leadership, I started to experience the challenges that many leaders have, which is, you know, having to make very difficult decisions, managing other people, how to set a vision, and I heard this great expression that if it's lonely at the top, you're doing it wrong. And I kind of get it. It's like I needed to figure out ways to get resources to support me as a leader so that I could show up well in my life as a whole and at work. And one of the resources I ended up finding was um, a coach. And I had several coaches over the course of my career. and. When I had the last one, which was around 2011 or so, I started to think, coaching, this might be a way that I'd like to serve next. Because even though I'd worked on societal issues and legislative issues, I really loved the kind of one-on-one impact. Fast forward to 2019, and I decided to do coach training with Lumia. And it was an incredible decision, not only for me professionally, but also for me personally. And I was sitting in one of those seats thinking, hmm, wouldn't it be cool if I worked for Lumia one day? And I was absolutely thrilled in the summer of 2020 when you called Noel and asked me to teach. And so now I teach the five-step coaching process and also teach mindfulness in coaching. And it's joy. Thank you so much for that. And, you know, Sharice, I'm, I'm struck by your humility. So also, I know that you have an Ivy League background. I know that your background is in law. I know that you've been a CEO. I know that you've been a board chief. And all of that, um, I think, shows up today in the exquisite grace that you carry with you. Um, having been through some shit. Let's be real. So 
I know that you and I um, share a little bit of a relationship with anxiety and depression. And for me, it started probably when I was around 11 to 14 were the really formative years for my relationship with depression and eating disorders were very much at the root of it. Probably at that time, I was also struggling um, and emerging with my own queer identity, right? And who knows what to do with that as an 11-year-old. Um, what, what, were, what were you like as a young person? And given the journey that you've undertaken through your career, through the space of coaching, through mindfulness, through leadership, uh, what would your younger self really be delighted to know right now? Like many people who are relatively high functioning with anxiety and depression, I was in on in some ways a joyful, ebullient kid, talkative, the life of the party. I was into, you know, I was a dancer and I did gymnastics. And I'm not just saying that. People say that about me. <laughs> you were such a happy kid. You were... But there was, I did have this sense that there was a little bit of a cloud hanging over me from a relatively young age. I can't say when, but it really, really started becoming darker, I would say, in middle school and in high school. And those are times that, you know, kids are developing, adolescence, hormonal stuff just not knowing what to do with all the stuff that's happening in our bodies and our psyche. And I remember it being very confusing to me and my parents because it seemed like I was this smart person who underperformed for long stints because I was lazy. And that's what I believed. Hmm. I could not explain it to myself or anybody else why I would just check all the way out for periods of time. And when I got to college and I look back on this, Noel, I mean, just kind of fast forwarding all of this, I didn't start doing regular therapy until I was 30, which was life changing. When I look back on high school, college, and even law school, I would go from being on the dean's list one semester to like holding on for dear life the next semester. Dean's list to like getting a bunch of incompletes. And that was that was my life until I got to be 30 and I think my adult self would tell my child self that you're okay your normal, these things that you're feeling and experiencing aren't your fault. And there's tools and resources to help you cope and adapt and feel healthy and well and like yourself, like therapy and journaling and meditation and yoga. And, um, it takes a lot of practice and the practice is lifelong and it's okay to be imperfect. You are pretty incredible just as you are. And I would say the last thing is like, 
When I was thinking about what I wanted to do next, Noelle, before I became a coach, I never knew that all of that stuff that I just shared and my whole story really would be an essential part of what makes me great at what I do now and how I serve other people. Oh, yeah. The empathy chip, right? Yeah. Thank you so much for your vulnerability and sharing. And you and I are so similar in our academic experiences. And I just, I want to normalize it for folks that, you know, brilliant people are not linear. And we live in a hierarchical society that prizes and prioritizes work and achievement. And it's to our disadvantage. Yeah. I began therapy at a, at a pretty young age and my God, I needed it. Um, and it was, it was really the disconnect between the extent that I was suffering and the extent to which I needed to perform and was able to perform that troubled me a lot of the time. And similar to you, I really zigzagged. And one of the positive psychology formulas that really blew my mind is the formula for thriving that comes from Kate Heffron out of the University of East London. And it's one third achievement. And that is both physical and mental achievement. One third contentment and one third hedonic, Uh which is fun, pleasure. But our whole society is focused on achievement, both physical and mental. And so we're we're trying to cram our souls and our psyches into a position that's truly only meant for, for one third. And that third not only doesn't have an impact when as a standalone for your relationship with thriving as a human, and it's physically impossible to hit peak intellectually and physically at the same time. So all this to say, we're spinning ourselves out like crazy. Yes, um, we are. And, and it's a shame. Uh, finding positive psychology is what saved me that there was an actual science to happiness, that there was a formula to happiness, that there are templates and roadmaps that I could follow that were outside of the medical model, that was outside of therapy, that was outside of processing my past and led me to believe that I wasn't fated to be someone who lived with anxiety and depression, that I could actually, through developing my neural pathways change the way I experience my own life and my own mind. Um, what led you to your own fork in the road? Well, you just said so much that resonated with me. I'm not sure it answers that question, but I want to say one thing that came to mind when you talked about the kind of one third achievement, one third contentment, one third hedonic or pleasure. One of the thing, one of the ways I was having a disconnect in my brain was the fact that, you know, often when we start our careers, we're on a certain track. And, you know, I finished law school and graduated from law school and was like, I don't want to practice law. What's wrong with me? You know, the whole world is telling you, go to be a court, you know, be a corporate lawyer and make tons of money. And I was like, that's not it. And then when I got to the nonprofit sector, 
and I started climbing in leadership, it felt disconcerting that it no longer felt like I wanted to climb higher and higher on the ladder that I was on. So it was pretty scary to, you know, as the metaphor goes, climb all the way down and move the ladder (laughs) to this coaching ladder um, and, and build my own career. But I would say, and so I would say like honoring that um, is a different way of saying what you said about, you know, not having all the focus on achievement in one's life. But I stumbled across yoga and I don't even remember how I met my yoga teacher when I was 18 years old. But that was really, really that put me on the path to learning more about mindfulness and meditation. I would say when I moved to Atlanta in 2011, that's when I was in my first executive director role. And I had positioned myself for this new opportunity without a lot of the experience. You know, I hadn't been an executive director before. I hadn't raised a lot of money before. I didn't know the college and college access and success space very well. I did what I learned that men do say, yes, I can do it. And then figure it out afterwards. (laughs) So I was proud of myself for that, but I became very, very stressed. And that's when I think I started tying my sense of worth to work productivity and outcomes in a way that was very unhealthy. And it took me And, you know, getting yoga teacher training when I was 15 was really helpful, but I burnt out, like crashed and burned to a crisp in 2018 in a way that I hadn't before in my professional life that led me to take a one month leave of absence from work. And that, that really gave me time to reassess everything. And that was critical to my um, decision to kind of get change course and become a coach next. Awesome. And as I was listening to you, I, I was thinking about my own journey with this and I, I dropped out of law school after my first year. Um, and I took such a hard U-turn into, you know, the ideas of all of the things that I was supposed to be mm-hmm. as a female-bodied person. And I attempted to become a housewife wow. <laughs> during my early 20s. And it didn't work out too well <laughs> because <laughs> that is not um that is not the metal um that I've made of. I I I had kind of this this striving piece. And I also recognize um, a relationship with burnout, you know, very deeply. And, you know, help helps. Working with my own coach was one of the pivotal pieces that helped me leave, uh, exit a very unhealthy marriage. Mentoring relationships from other women are what led me into graduate school, into my PhD, and um, the kindness and generosity of John Kim, my business partner, who just a stranger across the country said, you have a great story. You're a great writer. Do you want to take a stab at joining my team? You know, that, those are what 
opened my doors. Um, who have been, what have been the touchstones for you along the way? I'm a really intellectually curious person. I'm a creative at heart. But it, it wasn't until I became a coach that I realized how my nonprofit work and my mentoring work and my work with kids and being a dancer and a writer and someone who loves to travel the world, like how I could bring all of that to my work day in and day out in a very organic way. And I'm so grateful I figured that out, Noelle. It, it was very confusing not to have it figured out. And in all transparency, I became, I decided when I left my job in 2019 and decided to be a coaching coach full time, I was 48 years old and I was terrified that I was too, <laughs> too old and it was too late to be doing something that crazy. Um, and it turns out it wasn't crazy at all. It was exactly what I meant to be doing. But a side story is that in 2016, I started a consulting business. And that didn't work out in large part because I was very, very, very lonely professionally. And we need people. We need connection. And so one of the things that I've done very intentionally is build community with lots of coaches, entrepreneurs, solopreneurs who have been on the same journey with me. And um, so the other coaches that I have met through Lumia have been a really important part of my story, including you, Noel, your willingness to give me feedback on parts of my book and help me with some of the research and data and to to put a lovely quote on the back, um, other communities that I'm a part of. I, I just, what has made this chapter of my career and my life so very different is that I have role models of people who are living full, well-rounded, abundant lives and trying to be very joyful and mindful and peaceful and do good along the way without martyrdom and self-sacrificing that sometimes the nonprofit culture can reward. Um, I'm having the time of my life. I'm in my 50th year now. And uh, what, I, I mean, I'm, I'm just <laughs> I'm so grateful and excited to get up and work every day, even though, of course, I still have the tough days and battles with depression and anxiety. I know that everything that I'm doing is aligned and that feels very good. Oh, I love that. I, I love that experience for you. I, I'm, I'm similar, you know, depression and anxiety aren't totally gone, but they come in small bouts and I know what they are. They don't define me. Um, I walk with, with them instead. Um, when I was listening to you and I, I'm so glad that our community of coaches has shown up for you and fostering that community is one of the greatest privileges of my life. Um, with one of the things that coaching has taught me and has been so freaking refreshing to be around so many other coaches all the time is that 
as a coach, you know, you let go to your best ability of your, your ego. And this kind of leads into your work within the coaching space. Um, and it's not about you. And that premise allowed me to move through life and become a leader and become a CEO without having it be about me. (laughs) And I think that is so, I mean, that's a gift because otherwise I'd be in really rough shape. (laughs) Um, What has coaching as a discipline done for you? Yeah, I, I would say that last point. I mean, considering the fact that I began coaching full time seven weeks before the pandemic began, Oof. my days can only get so dark <laughs> because I have the privilege of talking to and listening to and holding space for and supporting remarkable human beings. And that time, just not thinking about myself is very, very rewarding and very satisfying. I would say the other thing is just the the, the practice of active listening, was, which is at the heart of what we do. One of the things that we we talk a lot about in Lumia training is that it's not our job to advise or fix the clients in front of us. They're not broken. Our job is to draw the wisdom out of them, not mm. pour wisdom in, right? And one of my favorite quotes is from the sociologist Parker Palmer, who wrote an article called... Um, Miss my misgivings about advice. And it says something like the human soul does not want to be advised, fixed, or saved. It simply wants to be companioned and witnessed exactly as it is. I say that to say, I think I am a better friend, daughter, partner, human because I now move through the world just trying to listen better, not to advise, fix, or save. And, you know, learning explicitly that nobody is looking for that and that they don't need it is transformative for relationships. Oh, yes. And and I'm so glad we're talking about this because for folks who are in the business of becoming coaches right now, it's tempting to have to feel like you need to provide um, fixing or saving as part of your product. And as you said, that's not it at all. Um, Our clients are remarkably resourceful and are literally the only folks who can find their way out of a problem and into a solution set that serves them as unique and whole people. It's such a paradigm shift based on the way that most of us were raised and based on the way that many of our institutions are currently set up. Um, What do you see in terms of the, the methodology of coaching 
and our current global landscape. I believe this is the profession of hope. Um, what do you see in terms of what we need to bring more of into the world as coaches? I agree with that. I agree that this is a profession of hope. And um, I've been reading Atlas of the Heart by Brene Brown. And she's, you know, it's a book that talks about emotions. And hope is often, hope is underrated. It's not just a, a feeling. It is like the belief that you can figure it out, that you can find, find the resources. The belief in yourself is what gives us hope. And I do think that hope in a real simple sense is what makes us want to get up and, and do it, try again day after day after day. The other piece I would say is going back to the advising, fixing, or saving, because all of my one-on-one -on -one coaching clients have big roles and responsibilities, often leading social justice organizations, managing other people, they are so relieved when they learn that it's not their job to advise, fix, or save people on their team. So like bringing a coaching culture to work can relieve a lot of stress of managers because, you know, you don't want to, you know, that one Harvard Business Review article, who has the monkeys? I think it's the most widely read article since it was published in 1971. You know, every, every, if every direct report comes into the office and they put their monkey on your desk, then at the end of the day, you have all the monkeys. And they're like having fun, relaxing with their kids. And you feel like, oh gosh, I got to save these 20 problems. But if leaders learn how to coach, in other words, ask good questions to help other people solve problems and also have the vulnerability to say, I don't have all the answers. Let's get all the smart people together and figure this out together. It will build strong, stronger relationships at work, help us get better answers to societal problems, and help everyone feel more connected and less alone in the process. Yes. Yes. Charisse, we need to write another book. Um, <laughs> we do. It, it, we do. Yeah. So, you know, when you were talking, I, you know, the first question that came to mind was, how did we get this way? You know, what universe created a position where managers, leaders broadly um, were forced into this sense of, you know, I need to have all of the answers and what needs to shift, you know, in order to usher in something new. And what came up for me was this idea of, of hierarchy that I hear a lot about right now, mm -hmm. that that top down, answer down folks being, um, you know, stacked one on top of the other in terms of capacity is so out of alignment with the way that uh, the research shows that diversity, diversity of thinking is actually what creates the greatest outcomes. Absolutely. Um, I, again, 
remark on my dumb luck of becoming a coach before I became a leader because my stance of not knowing was just beaten into me. And I'll be the first person at a meeting to say, I have no idea. Who's smart? Who's smarter than me? <laughs> let's, yeah. let's get that person in here. And it's great. <laughs> it's, yeah. It feels really good to not have to be the guy. Um, this is a, a really important message. Um, what else do we need to know? What else do we yeah. need to I want to yeah, I want to piggyback on that because I also think I think hierarchy is a huge part of the problem. And there there needs to be a, a colleague of mine, and I can't remember who it was, just put up an informal poll on LinkedIn and asked how many people, you know, if you're a manager, did you or did you not get some kind of management training when you became a manager? And 93% of people said that they hadn't. And I think that we often, you know, when we're starting off our careers, we are drawn to doing a certain kind of, we're interested in doing the work, whatever that is. Um, And like, so for me, I loved working with young people. I love doing direct service. Running youth programs where I'm spending most of my time planning for thinking about and working with young people is a completely different job than being the executive director of a youth program where I am managing the people who are fundraising, who are doing kind of the the, the finances, who are what reaching out to corporate partners. And so I think it, it's really incumbent upon organizations to invest more in everyone and in, in leaders, um, whether it's through coaching, training, whatever it is, um, giving people the resources to show up and do their best. What, what happens often is that you know, I, I see clients who are overwhelmed day two of being in a new leadership role, especially if it's at a new organization, because they're trying to, there's the learning curve on the organization itself. They're trying to build relationships with their team, chart a vision, figure out the strategies, all while figuring out how to become a manager on their own <laughs> at the same time. It is not a recipe for success or employee well-being. And we've got to do something about that. And I will also add, when I was writing my book, I found out, and it was a shock to me because I have never been this person, 51% of Americans take their paid time off, Noelle. I never left a paid time off day on the table in my entire career. 49% of people are leaving paid time off on the table every year. And it goes back to this. It, and it's just capitalism. Can we just say it? Like we, we were yeah. trained to believe that our self-worth is tied to our productivity and output to help other people make money and that we're, we're worthless if we're not spending all of our time doing that. A lot of unlearning needs to be done. 
to, to oh, yeah. solve that last problem. Let's call out white supremacist culture as well. Yes, you know? like, like absolutely. Like, like that's heavy, heavy in there. Yes. Um, Can I say a thing about that? that yeah. yeah. That compounds everything, right? Yes. I have to be, this is a literal mantra that I hear a lot of black people say, and it, it applies to immigrants as well. And folks who grow up poor, you have to be twice as good. You have to work twice as hard. You got to show up earlier. You got to stay late. If you want to get half as far, that is so damaging. There is the research that shows put two resumes in front of someone and, you know, that people can't see the name. And if someone has like a college degree, they'll get a quote unquote better job than someone who has no degree. But you put, you know, Rashid, um, Rashid, the name Rashid on the PhD, you know, on the college educated one and the name John on the other one that has less experience, less education, whatever, John is going to get the better job. So you know, this is this is very, very, very damaging to us, our psyches, our well-being. Um, yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. And and to, to bring it back to coaching, thinking about how much work is required of us as a society to undo that implicit bias. Yeah, how much work is required of us um, as leaders in business spaces to treat folks respectfully as whole people in terms of having lives and being deserving of rest and to give permission to everyone to not have the answer. When, When you were talking about the plight of the young leader and when you were talking about the um, the weight of the social construction for black people and immigrants of having to work twice as hard. Um, I was thinking about how that gets in the way of so much active listening. Yeah. And, you know, perhaps for that young leader in the arena, what that individual truly needs might be to simply observe instead of perform in those first two days. Yeah. And that those skills of observation and rest and um, leaning into intuition to allow your mind to even get to a space of boredom where you can tap into genius, Mm. you know, those are coaching skills. And it would, I believe it would benefit society at large to have those things become normative standards. Yeah, absolutely. seeking to understand, seeking to ask questions instead of proclaiming and rushing through. Um, it's a, it's a rough landscape. I don't know that we're going to see the type of large scale change that is required in my lifetime. Um, I do believe that when, if we really champion these skills, we have a shot at making the world a little bit better. 
um, what do you want to push forth at this point into the world? Kind of given that we're sitting here, we're saying, all right, blank slate, we have the magic wand. What, what do you want to do? No, I, I agree with you, Noel. I, but I, I think that there is a connection between what you said and the great resignation, right? It's like people are opting out of companies and institutions that don't, don't uphold the values and practices that we're talking about to do their own thing, to do different things. I was listening to this statistic about, you know, how the pandemic at one point um, impacted Black businesses, you know, 40% went away. And now in just a court, in, the, in a matter of two years, even more are emerging. So if organizations, companies, whether they're nonprofit or for-profit, want to attract and retain really great talent, all of the stuff you were talking about, adopting a coaching culture, modeling, you know, taking time off and rest and without having to explain it, right? Is this this kind of day or that kind of day or this kind of day? You know, I just can't be here today because I can't perform my best, period, right? And have that be respected and accepted. We are... We need that oh, and or we're going to have a lot more. We have the technology and all these kinds of ways to transfer knowledge that people are going to find, continue to find ways of working and living very, very differently and opting out of the places that want them to to behave like machines. And I think it's very, very exciting because everyone who is making that choice, I mean, my friend um, Delroy, I wrote about in my book, who decided to move he and his family to a farm in the midst of the pandemic. And, you know, I, there's so many examples of that. It's going to provide really great examples for the young people who are looking at us that there are, there are other options other than just oh. being a machine. <laughs> Oh yeah, and it, you know, I don't have a business background. Um, building my own company was my first leadership, true leadership role, and we built it intuitively based on the tenets of coaching because that's what was accessible. And for so, for example, we have a non-hierarchical leadership structure. I'm I what Noel says doesn't go. We need to listen to everyone and folks are autonomous in their sphere. Um, there is unlimited sick time. There is unlimited vacation. Folks set their own schedules. They're not monitored. Mm -hmm. We promote independent work. It's entirely virtual. You can live wherever you want. You can work where you want. I have a highly competent, highly productive team. And I, I value um, every single human that touches our organization. Um, I'm shocked when I hear from folks how out of the ordinary those simple things are. Mm -hmm. They are not costly. And it's it's maddening um, that it feels foreign to enact this kind of humanism in the yeah. work environment. Yeah. This has been such a rich conversation. 
um, thank you for your time and for sharing your thoughts, your mind, your, your brilliance with us. I would like to give folks the opportunity to work with you. Who are you looking to work with and where can folks find you? Yeah. So I'm looking to work with clients one-on-one who are navigating leadership or career transitions and want to bring a coaching culture to their role and to their work. Um, And I'm also looking to serve groups of folks through talks about the, at the intersection of leadership and well-being, everything from um, coming back from burnout to bringing mindfulness into the workplace and topics related to my book, The Joy of Thriving While Black, How to Thrive While Black, How to Thrive While Black at, at work and some of the lessons learned in writing the book. I can be reached at hello at shereeseandwilliams.com. My website is shereeseandwilliams.com. Pretty much on any platform, you can find me with my first name, middle initial, and last name. Sharice, thank you so much. Um, And if you'd like to find Sharice inside the Lumia classroom, please come see us. Thanks for listening to Everything Life Coaching. If you're feeling the draw to become a coach, head to lumiacoaching.com slash everything. Explore a new career that brings fulfillment, gives you a true sense of purpose, and a bold community to do it with. Lumia is ready to equip you with the tools, training, and community you will need to reach your goals. If you're ready to build a unique coaching business on your own terms while making an impact on the world at large, Lumia is the next bold step in your coaching journey. That's lumiacoaching.com slash everything. And hey, if you're waiting for a sign, this is it. 